We're going to be in the book of Ruth. We're going to tackle this book um, over the next few weeks. It's a short book. It's four chapters. It's in the Old Testament. This is one of the greatest love stories that is found um, in the Bible, and it's a beautiful book, and I think we're going to be able to pull a lot of great truth from it. We're going to start in chapter 1 today, so if you have your Bibles again, you can open up to Ruth chapter 1. Um, the title of the series is A Love That Never Quits, and what we're going to see is mirrored in this story is also the love of God. We're going to see the gospel take place in this book, and we're going to see how God loves us and how he pursues us even in the midst of some of our darkest of times. And so my prayer is that this would be a really encouraging book to you. Um, that these messages would be something that we can kind of as a church latch on to, and uh, there's incredible beauty here. Would you stand with me this morning for the reading of God's Word? And uh, we're going to, again, be again in Ruth chapter 1. We're going to start in verse 1, and uh, we're, we're going to provide a little bit of context in just a little bit. And it says this, In the days when the judges ruled in Israel, okay, so if you are a note taker and you like to write in your Bible at all, can I just encourage you to circle right there where it says judges? Because that's going to give you a very important backdrop to the climate and what is going on in the rest of this story. Because what we're going to find is a few things in the, book of, in the book of Ruth. Names mean something very important in this book. But we're also going to need to understand the setting. And what is happening, because there's a lot of culture that's happening here. And as we dive into it and we understand it, we can understand the book even better. In the day when the judges ruled in Israel, a severe famine came upon the land. So a man from Bethlehem in Judah left his home and he went to live in the country of Moab. Okay, remember that, because Moab's also going to be very important here in just a second. Taking his wife and two sons with him. The man's name was Elimelech, and his wife was Naomi. If you're looking for baby names, Elimelech. <laughs> I'm joking. Some of you are like, no. <laughs> but it's a great name. It means God is my king. Um, but we're going to find out he actually doesn't live up to his name. So Elimelech and his wife, Naomi. Their two sons were Malon and Kilion, which sound like Klingon names. Um, <laughs> <laughs> they were Ephratites from Bethlehem in the land of Judah, and when they reached Moab, they settled there. Verse 3, then Elimelech died, and Naomi was left with her two sons. The two sons married Moabite women. One married a woman named Orpah, not Oprah, Orpah, and the other a woman named Ruth, which obviously the book is named after her. But about 10 years later, both Malon and Kilion died. This left Naomi alone without her two sons or her husband. That is the setting. That is the beginning. That is where we're going to pick up today on this incredible love story that starts first with tragedy. So let's pray. Father, we come before you. Jesus, we are so thankful for who you are. We're thankful especially for your word. It's living, it's true, it's powerful. It meets us, Lord, even in the midst of our brokenness. Jesus, we love you. We thank you for who you are and all that you've done. And we ask that this morning you would speak powerfully from your word. That as we dive into the truths that are found there, that we in turn would be changed people. In your name we pray. 
Amen. Before you grab a seat, would you turn to the person next to you? And I want you to answer this question. If your house was burning down and you could go in and grab one item, not a person or a pet, (laughs) not a person or a pet, you could go in and grab one item to save, what would it be and why? And then grab a seat. Anybody want to shout out what they would grab? What did you get? Your car? Oh, guitar. Okay, definitely. Anybody else? Something that you would, you know what? Your, your Bible, look at him. He's like, suck up. <laughs> Anybody else? Pictures. Ooh, yeah, those are hard to replace. Definitely, that's a good one. Um, one of the ones that I have is a blanket that uh, my mom had made for me whenever, I, it was from all my t-shirts when I was a teenager. It's like all the Christian bands and concerts that I went to, so it's like Five Iron Frenzy. I'm throwing things out there. Some of you are like, what? It was ska music back in the day with all the mosh pits and my wild youth. Um, (laughs) No, but it it reminds me of my past, right? And and I think that this is incredibly powerful for us. We have to understand the power of backstory. The power of backstory. You know, today is Valentine's Day, and if you look on social media at all, right now what's being flooded is like, like, how did you meet your significant other? And it's like a long list of like, here's where I met them, and this was our first date, and this is where we eat, and this person like falls asleep first. And it's like all these answers to all these questions, and I've seen it like constantly. And what's happening in those posts is we are being brought into people's backstory. And my guess is that most of you, when you answered that question, the one thing you would grab, that one item gives us a glimpse a little bit into your backstory. It tells us a little bit about your personality. It tells us about what you value. It tells us even why you are who you are today to a certain degree. Backstory is massively important. Um, When we do this, you know, when we think about like movies, Sometimes you'll encounter a character in a movie and like you're trying to figure out who they are, but until you hear their backstory, you don't understand the actions that they're doing. Um, I'll give you an example of this. My wife was watching a show and um, I'm less interested in the show than she is. (laughs) So I walked in in the middle of it and like these characters are talking and I'm just like, what is going on? And suddenly she's like, she presses pause and it's like, then it's like this long story. I'm like, she's just went, I'm like, okay, wait, I, I don't care that much. Never mind. Just keep, keep watching, babe. It's one of those. Um, but think about this with me. Backstory is made up of a few things. It's made of your setting, your culture, your climate, your experiences, your encounters, the different pain and tragedy. It, it, it's, it's the nation in which you were born into. It's the values that surrounded you. It's the people, that, it's the way that you were raised and that you were grow up. But it's also combined of not just your setting, but your circumstances. The pressures that are coming against you, that surround you, that are trying to force you to make a choice. But more than anything, your backstory is made up of your choices and your decisions. So often we are with people and we hear things like, I don't even know how I got here or how I ended up here. Well, the reality is, is they do. (laughs) Most of the time, whenever we say that about ourselves, we're like, I don't know how I ended up in this spot. It was never usually a one-time choice. It was a series of choices that we've lived in over a period of time. And those choices are a little bit of our backstory. It's very rarely. Uh, let, me, let me prove to you just in one moment the importance of backstory. Imagine with me, let's put on our imagination caps. 
The year's 2018. I know some of you are like, whoa, <laughs> I can't even think back to yesterday. <laughs> the year's 2018, and you hop on a time machine, and you know nothing about anything that's going on right now, and you arrive late 2020. And you walk down through the streets of New York City. And suddenly, everywhere you look, everyone's wearing masks. And you go up to ask about what's going on, and you get within six feet of someone. <laughs> right? And there's a panic look on their face as they practically kick you, and they're like, bubble. <laughs> right? And you, tr- you go to try to go to Chick-fil-A, and the restaurant's closed. And everywhere you go, and, and then you're like, okay, what is going on? I don't understand this. And suddenly you start talking to someone, and they're like, yeah, yeah, the, the government decided to give us money. <laughs> not once, not twice, but they're trying a third time. You're like, wait a second, the government's giving us money? <laughs> like, what, what, what is happening? Like, honestly, like, if you didn't know the backstory of what's happened to that point, everything that surrounds you suddenly, like, this is completely different. This makes no clue of what's going on. With no backstory, you're left bewildered. But with the backstory, suddenly things start to make sense and you can better follow the story. The same is true with the book of Ruth. We have to understand the backstory of what's happening here because what we are going to find is an incredibly beautiful story of God's love revealed to each of us amidst darkness. But in order to truly appreciate and understand that love, we first have to understand the darkness. There's two stories that we need to understand here, and it's the story, it's the history of Moab, but also the history of Israel in this moment in time where we're picking up. I want to read to you again. It says this. In the days when the judges ruled, and we're going to get to that in just a second, in Israel, a severe famine came upon the land. So a man from Bethlehem in Judah left his home, and he went to live in the country of Moab. Okay? Went to live in the country of Moab. So we have to understand a couple things here. We need to understand the time of the judges, and we need to understand why this move to Moab was a poor choice. Okay? We have to understand the setting and the climate behind us. So we need to first grasp with us. So I'm going to take us on a little bit of a history lesson with the history of Moab. If you were to take your Bible and scroll back quite a few books and go to the book of Genesis, you're going to encounter um, a series of two broken stories that take place directly one after the other. Abraham is sitting in his tent one day. In Judges 18, and I'm sorry, in Genesis 18 and, and Genesis 19. And he's visited by three people. One of them is God, and the other two are angels, okay? And so God basically comes to his tent, and he starts speaking with him, and he basically tells him and lets him in to know, hey, number one, I'm going to continue my covenant through you. You're going to be blessed. You're going to have a son. It's going to be Isaac. But also I'm here because I'm going to look at Sodom and Gomorrah because the outcry of that city has so reached me with its wickedness that I've come down to see for myself. So two angels, they leave. And so Abraham is left here with God and he's watching and he knows that Lot is living and Lot's his, his cousin, his nephew. And he's sitting there and he's, he's watching what's taking place and uh, the angels are heading there and he knows how wicked this, this city of Sodom and Gomorrah really is. And so he starts trying to bargain with God, and he's like, God, will, will, you really, will you really destroy the city if there's 50 righteous people there? 
God, if there's 50, would you withhold your judgment? He's like, yes, yes, I would. And they go back and forth, back and forth, and it moves from 50 to 45 to 40 to 30 to 20 to 10. And he's finally like, God, if you could just find just even 10 people in this whole, would you withhold? And God's like, yeah, absolutely. But not even 10 could be found. You see, what happens is that those, they arrive in the city and Lot brings them into his house. And it says that nighttime falls and the city is so wicked that the men of the city come and they surround Lot's house and they demand that he send out the two men so that they can rape them all night long. And Lot's like, there's no way, I, can't, I cannot do this. And they attempt to bust in through the door and the angels actually block the door, they stop it and they blind the men so they can't see. And then the angels look at Lot and his family. So Lot and his wife and his two daughters, and they say, do you have any family in the city? You need to go get them now and leave because judgment is coming and the whole city is gonna be destroyed. So Lot has to exit his house to go try to find his daughter's fiance. The interesting thing about this is that those, the fiancés, they're out there and the story tells us that it was the entire men of the city that had surrounded the house. Lot's own daughter's fiancés were most likely some of the men that were out there trying to break in and do this despicable act. This is the brokenness that we're being brought into. They flee the city. I know this is a messed up story, this is, but it's in the Bible. They flee the city and they run to the hills and in the process of it, the entire city is wiped out and the only people that are left is Lot, his wife, and his two daughters. But his wife looks back towards the city as if to say, I miss that, and is instantly turned to a pile of salt. Lot and his daughters, they flee to the caves, and while they're there, his daughters come up with the scheme. They say, there's no hope for us. There's no, there's no end in sight. There's no one that's gonna come to our rescue us. Our fiancés are dead. There, there's no one that's gonna carry on our family line. So they come up with a plan. They said, we're gonna get our dad drunk. And we're going to sleep with him, and then we will have children through him to carry on our family line. I know, some of you are like, what? This is in the Bible. Genesis 19, Lot's daughters do so, and guess what the very firstborn son to the oldest daughter's name is? Moab. The Moabite nation traces their family line to this backstory, to this moment in time. It goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 19. This son that is born is the leader of what will become the Moabites in this nation that comes from their line. Their top gods was Chamosh. And Chamosh was a god that was, um, it reflects a little bit of their own surrounding territory and the area that was around them. So Israel, as you're gonna find out in just a second, has been brought out of Egypt and God specifically says, don't intermarry with the culture, stay away because the gods that they serve, it's like despicable some of the things that they do. The Moabites, um, they served a lot. Again, in the, the surrounding areas, they also served the gods Baal and Ashtar. Okay, and these were fertility gods that believed that fertility happened whenever the god Baal and the god Ashtar slept with each other. And then that was what created the ability for like human life on earth to continue, and then also for crops to be able to grow. And so these false gods were worshiped through some of the most debased sexual practices, including things like sacrificing children 
to the god Chamosh. So this is one of the reasons why when you get into the Old Testament and you constantly hear God saying things like, don't intermarry and don't blend in with that culture. These are the gods that they served. This is the ways that they served them. And Israel did not listen. In fact, the Israelite kings later will so take on their surrounding territories, the gods that they're serving, they will start sacrificing Israelite children in the Valley of Gehenna. They will mirror the worship of the Moabites, but in the land of Israel. Okay, so this is what's happening. The Moabite God is the God of Chamosh, and he's the fertility God, and there they sacrifice their children in order to have even more. So what about Israel? Okay, so the history of Israel to this point, it says this. In the days when the judges ruled in Israel, a severe famine came upon the land. That is verse one of the book of Ruth. That verse is placed there on purpose because it's giving you and me as the reader insight into what's happening in the land of Israel. The book of Judges takes place immediately after Israel has come out of Egypt. They've been freed from slavery. God has appeared in miraculous signs and wonders. He's caused the plagues. And by the way, what's one of the really interesting things about the plagues, every one of the plagues was an attack on the Egyptian gods. It was a way of saying, these are not real. I am the real one. God has rescued them. He has delivered them by the power of his right hand and he has brought them into the promised land and he's told them to possess the land and to push out the other people so that they won't blend in with the culture. And God has said, if you don't do this, if you don't heed my wisdom, you're gonna end up being just like the culture that surrounds you, just like Sodom and Gomorrah, just like the wickedness that completely surrounds this area. But the people of God don't listen. And this is what it says. This is, um, they did not listen. They did, Israel disobeyed. And so Judges, the book of Judges is arguably one of the saddest books in the entire Bible. I want to read to you from the very opening of Judges chapter 2. And it says, after that whole generation, that's the generation of Joshua, had been gathered to their ancestors, another grew up. Listen very carefully to the words that's described here. Who neither knew the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. And then the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord and they served the Baals. They started to blend their worship both with God, but also their surrounding culture. They forsook the Lord, the God of their ancestors who had brought them out of Egypt. They followed and worshiped various gods of the peoples around them. They aroused the Lord's anger because they forsook him and served Baal and the Ashtoreths. In his anger against Israel, the Lord gave them into the hands of raiders who plundered them. He sold them into the hands of the enemies all around them, whom they were no longer able to resist. And whenever Israel went up, the hand of the Lord was against them to defeat them, just as he had sworn to them, and they were in great distress. Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hands of these raiders. Yet they would not listen to their judges. But they prostituted themselves to other gods, and they worshipped them. They quickly turned from the ways of their ancestors who had been obedient to the Lord's commands. And whenever the Lord raised up a judge for them, he was with the judge, and he saved them out of the hands of the enemies as long as the judge lived. For the Lord relented because of their groaning under those who oppressed and afflicted them. But when the judge died, the people returned to ways even more corrupt than those of their ancestors before them. 
following other gods and serving and worshiping them. They refuse to give up their evil practices and their stubborn ways. If that is not one of the most sad, disheartening paragraphs in the, old, in the whole Bible, I don't know what is. The book of Judges is time after time after time again, God coming to the rescue for his people, raising up a judge to rescue them from their affliction. And then the second that that judge dies, they return not just to their old ways, but they return to even more vile and corrupt ways than before. It was this constant, vicious cycle. The result of their pursuit of their culture around them is that they became just like their surrounding culture. The second thing is that the result of their pursuit is that they were turned over to their enemies. Their possessions were stolen, their families were taken and destroyed, and God even opposes them in battle. But this is the beauty of judges, that even in darkness, God pursues his people. Even though time and time again, they actually return to their old ways and even darker ones, he still continues to pursue their heart. The cycle of judges looks like this, and it should sound familiar to you because it sounds a lot like our lives sometimes. There's temptation. There's a desire to chase idols or what is priority to their culture that surrounds them, and so the people of God did that. Then they found themselves in bondage and in brokenness because of what they pursued. As they find themselves in this state of brokenness, they then cry out to God. God delivers, they forget, and they're tempted, and the cycle starts all over again. That's the cycle of Judges. And, and I want to show you this because this is so important. We saw from Genesis chapter 19 where the Moabites have come from. But I want to show you the utter brokenness of Israel over a period of time. The book of Judges ends this way. In Judges chapter 19, we get an exact replica of what happened in Genesis 19. Do you remember the story again? That you've got Sodom and Gomorrah and the, the angels come. The exact same setting happens, but this time there's a Levite and he's traveling through the land and he's desperate to get into Israelite territory because he knows how wicked the surrounding cultures are. And so he says, I, I got I to travel longer. I'm going to travel longer today. I'm going to get into the land of Benjamin. I'm going to get with the people of God because I'll be safe there, right? Because that's different. That's different than the surrounding culture. If I can get with the people of God, I'll just be safe. And he arrives in the town of Gibeah in the land of Benjamin and he arrives in the city and he's sitting there and nightfall starting to come and he's sitting in the town square and he's hoping someone's gonna bring him in and no one will bring him in. So finally an old man comes out and he's like, well, what are you doing? Why are, why are you out in the city square? You need to come and stay with me quickly. Do not spend the night in the town square. And he brings him into his home and the exact same thing that happened in Genesis 19 happens in Judges 19. The men of the city come out and they surround the city and they say, bring to us that man. What I want you to catch is this. The brokenness of their culture had so crept its way into it that the people of God now mirrored and looked exactly like it. The man of the house refuses and instead the concubine is sent out and then in the morning, she returns and she falls dead on the doorstep. 
the Levite ends up cutting her into 12 pieces and he sends it to the 12 tribes of Israel to say, this atrocity happened among the people of God and Israel goes into civil war, 11 tribes against one. And the book of Judges ends just like that. It ends in civil disorder and brokenness and civil war with the people of God fully reflecting the absolute most brokenness that could possibly be out there. And what I want you to catch is this. Listen to me. The opening line to Ruth, in the days when the judges ruled Israel, the setting for the story we're going to be camped in is smack dab in the middle of all that. You see, the book of Ruth takes place right in the middle of Judges. And so we have to understand that backstory to understand the story of Ruth and how beautiful it really is. You see, this is a story of a family running from God and discipline, refusing to change and to turn to him. This is what it says. If you have your Bibles open, back them up with me. It says, in the days when the judges ruled in Israel, a severe famine came upon the land. So a man from Bethlehem in Judah left his home and went to live in the country of Moab. Okay, a severe famine, a famine was typically in the Old Testament a way that God would pronounce judgment upon his people. It was a form of discipline. And I want you to understand, get a little insight into this. He was allowing physically to happen and to take place to reveal to them what they looked like spiritually. They suddenly were desperate. They were hungry. They were in need of the very thing that could give them life. And it was God's way of saying, that's what you look like spiritually. You're searching for bread everywhere but from me. And instead, you are desperately trying to find it in all these other places. Think of that application. They were allowed to experience physically a look at what they looked like spiritually. The point was to get them to turn from their wickedness and to turn to the true bread of life. Famine was a physical state that was meant to reveal a spiritual state. And this is where we're going to get into the importance of names in the book of Ruth. Again, if you're a note taker, feel free to drop this in your Bible. But Bethlehem means the house of bread. And suddenly now the house of bread has no bread. There's famine in the land. Elimelech means God is king. And Naomi means pleasant. So catch this with me. This is what we have. A man whose name declares God is king who is married to a woman in Israel whose name means pleasant because they have found themselves in the people and in the presence of God, who live in Bethlehem, which is the house of bread where ultimately Jesus, the one who is the bread of life, will come from, choose to leave to go to Moab. Because in Moab, it seems like what they need is there. Ooh, does that not sound a little bit like our lives? God promises us that everything we ever need is in him. That our source of joy and peace and fulfillment and hope can be found in him and him alone. But if we're being real, our, our culture just loves to whisper like, hey, there's bread over here. There's hope over here. If, if you take on my values and my culture, you can raise your kids better. You can raise your family better. I have so much to offer you. Would, you. would you just come a little bit closer? Moab whispers. And those whispers are very enticing. 
It says the things that you thought you needed, like God's withholding from you. He's not giving it what you need. Instead of realizing that, guess what? They were under discipline and they needed to repent of their sins. Instead, they ran from discipline and they're like, you know what? I'm gonna go to where I can get mine and what I want. And so Elimelech turns from being God is my king to saying, I am my king. I'll choose my way and I'll do what I need to do for my family and it's gonna turn out great and I'll be able to raise my kids over there. I can't raise them here, but I can raise them over there in Moab. And so a decision is made. They leave. They don't just leave Bethlehem. They leave Israel and they go to Moab. The concept of leaving is huge in the book of Judges and in the book of Ruth. Throughout all the Old Testament, God says of Israel whenever they're abandoning him and turning after the other gods, he says that you have left me, you have abandoned me, you have rejected me. Israel's leaving looked a little bit like this. They left God to pursue idols. They left truth to pursue lies. They left love to pursue lust. God will even call them prostitutes because of it. And they left life to pursue death. But Elimelech did the same thing. Elimelech leaves the people of God to pursue a culture wrapped in brokenness. He leaves truth to pursue the lies of enemy. He leaves love to pursue what he thinks that he wants for his life and he leaves life thinking he's gonna attain it there. But Naomi's gonna come back completely empty-handed. No husband and no sons. See, this is vital for us to grasp because the reality is, is that everything that Moab promised it actually took from Naomi. It promised bread, it promised life, but it brought death. It promised a better way of life for her and her family, it brought destruction. It promised that the setting would instantly change and that everything would be fine, but everything that she valued and she loved would be robbed from her and ripped from her hands. Moab promised a lot of things. It promised what they felt like they couldn't have in the confines of God or in his commands. It promised what they didn't have or what they didn't or what they wanted and they felt like God was withholding from them. It led them away from God, his presence, his discipline, his people and his commands. But all it actually gave was it stole, it killed, and it destroyed. The New Testament, we get there and it says that the thief has come to steal, to kill and to destroy, but Jesus says, I've come to give you life and life more abundantly. Can I just tell you something? Listen to me. The whispers of Moab, they'll promise you life. They'll promise you bread. It'll promise you, hey, if, if you just for a season will come and live here, it's not that big of a deal. It, it's gonna be okay. But the reality is, is it's coming to rob. See, it promised just a season. Like all temptation, it lied about the time period. It lied about how much we would soak into that culture. We say things like, you know, it's going to be just for a short time. I'm not going to stay long. Things will get better. I'll get back. That's what Elimelech and Naomi were like. You know, I'll just stay there for a season, but it doesn't. It lasts over 10 years. They become so engrossed in the Moabite culture that they, they raise their sons and they marry them off to Moabite women. They have become ingrained in the culture of Moabite that surrounds them. 
we say things like this. You know, I just need to step out of God's presence and his commands for just a little bit to get what I need and what I want, but I'll come right back. <laughs> Sin lures us like that. It's just, it's just, I've done a lot of really great things for God, and so I, I'll just dabble here. But it's not going to be that big of a deal. It's not going to hurt anyone. It's not going to hurt me. It's not going to hurt my family. I guarantee you, Elimelech never would have imagined his death nor the death of his sons from his choices. Their temporary stay returned and turned into a, they remained there. They got comfortable. They lowered their standards and convictions. They got cozy and they blended in. But what did Moab actually give? It gave death and every dream that they had was destroyed. The man's name was Elimelech, his wife's name was Naomi, and the names of their sons were Malon and Kilion, and they were Ephratites from Bethlehem, Judah. And they went to Moab and they lived there. Now Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. And they married Moabite women, one named Orpah and the other named Ruth. And they lived there about 10 years. Both Malon and Kilion also died. And Naomi was left with her, without her two sons and without her husband. That's a powerful couple of verses. Listen, this is not a moment this is the natural progression of their poor choices that they lived in. Sin loves to grow over time and to poison the things in your life and to take and rob and steal from you the things that matter most to you. Elimelech dies, Malon and Killian get married to Moabite women, their family further blends into the culture and then they in two die. The lure of Moab has now ended. All the promises it has made has now just been given out and it's dealt out death. They left for bread, they found poison. They left for safety, protection, security for their life and their dreams for their kids and it has robbed them of their children. The very reason they left was most likely to protect their family, and yet Moab took their family from them. They left to avoid discipline, and instead they embraced with open arms destruction. They left looking for hope, peace, and fulfillment apart from the presence of God. But all they found was hopelessness. They embraced a lie, pursued a lie, and their decisions had outcomes. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. You know what a wage is? A wage is something that you've earned. It's something that, like, if I were to say, hey, can you come to my house and mow my yard, <laughs> and I'll give you $20. And you finish mowing my yard, and you walk up to me, and I'm like, well, here's a dollar. You'd be like, excuse me? <laughs> You're like, I, that, that's not what we agreed upon. That's not the wage that I have earned. It's rightfully, listen to me, sin carries with it a wage that is rightfully earned, and that wage is death. And it's not just physical death, and it's not just even eternal spiritual death. It brings death to everything. When we lie, it destroys relationships. Whenever we steal, it breaks trust. Whenever, you know, insert any sin in there and there's death that starts to insert and become a part of those relationships that surround us. They embraced that in the outcome. I want you to catch something with me. Her decisions changed her massively. I want, I'm gonna read in verse 19 here in the first chapter. 
So the two women, and this is Ruth and Naomi, and we're going to get to Ruth next week because there's a beautiful section here. So the two women went on until they came to Bethlehem. They decided to go back home. And when they arrived in Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women explained, can this be Naomi? Listen to me carefully what Naomi says. Don't call me Naomi, she told them. Call me Mara, which means bitter. Don't call me pleasant. Call me bitter. Because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. See, what had happened is that her time away from the presence of God had changed her identity. She no longer even saw herself for the person she was before. I know what you're thinking right now. You're going, okay, Pastor Josh, thanks for this message on Valentine's Day. (laughs) So the question then becomes, why now? Why today? Why on Valentine's Day? This is not the Valentine's Day story that we want, but it's most certainly the one that we need. The beauty of the book of Ruth is not only in the greatness of the love revealed in this book, but it's also in the setting in which it takes place. Light is more precious when it invades the deepest darkness. And the truest of loves is held to more tightly when our time and our circumstance and setting seem to scream nothing but darkness and hopelessness to our hearts. This is why this message is so important. Because for most of us, our life is not the typical beautiful little Valentine's Day, write it on a card, everything's happy-go-lucky and cheery. There's some dirt, there's some grime, there's some brokenness. And the story of the book of Ruth is the fact that God invades the deepest darkness. Come on, listen to me. The beauty of this story, the reason I just gave you this sad sob story and gave you all this cultural context is the fact that, listen to me, light is about to emerge in the deepest darkness. She is going to arrive in Bethlehem wanting to be called Mara Bitter. But by the time we get to the end of this story, not only is she Naomi once again, the entire town looks at her and calls her blessed. Listen to me, this is the beauty of the gospel. This is the beauty of the God that we serve. This is the beauty that steps into situations where we've lived in Moab for a little too long and says, come my son, come my daughter, come back home. Will you come back home and allow me to rescue you? Will you come back home and allow me to bring fulfillment and hope to you? The opening of this story leaves us with no hope. If you look at this on paper, There is no reason for Naomi to have any hope whatsoever. Everything has been taken from her. She is returning empty. Her husband is gone. Her children are gone. In their day and time and in this culture, she is now as poor as she possibly could be. There is no hope for her. None. But God. Is that not your story? Is that not mine? I can tell you that's my story. There was no hope for him but God. The opening of this story leaves us with no hope. It's dark times, evil people, incredibly despicable deeds, serious wrong choices, pain, death, destruction, the results of the curse of sin. 
And as we look on the surface of this pursuit, all we see is hopelessness and pain. The path of sin and dreams have ripped apart everything that they thought they wanted. Ruth 1, don't call me Naomi, call me Mara. Ruth 4, the women said to Naomi, praise be to the Lord who this day has not left you without a guardian redeemer. May he become famous throughout Israel. He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you and who is better than seven sons has given birth. Then Naomi took the child in her arms and cared for him. And the woman living said, Naomi has a son. And they called him Obed. And he was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Israel's greatest king will come from the story of great brokenness. This is the power of our story. This is the beauty of God. We encounter the beauty of divine love. Divine love enters the deepest darkness. There is no brokenness and there is no darkness too deep that we cannot be rescued by his love. Can I, can I just be honest with you? Some of you this morning, you're sitting here today and part of you, as we're going through this story, part of you, you really feel like Moab. Or you really feel like Israel. As you look at God and you look at your own backstory, you're going, God, there's, there's a lot of filth here. There's a lot of brokenness. God, I, I, as I reread my backstory, God, I, I'm, not, I'm not sure there's much you can do. <laughs> can I invite you to insert a little line in your story, make it a little blank, and hand the pen to the king? Listen, the God that we serve is the God who rewrites stories. Those are the best stories we, we like to read anyways, right? When the underdog wins. When everything is turned around in a moment. When suddenly everything changed. Can I tell you something? That's the story of the gospel. That's the story of the God that we serve, that as we return home to him, just like the prodigal son, when we come marching home and we've got our little story ready to go, God, I'm just ready to be a slave. I'm so unworthy. I'm not even deserving of your love. And he wraps his arms around us, throws a signet ring on our hand and says, no, you're my son, you're my daughter, and you are heir to the kingdom. Listen to me, someone today, you need to hear this. The story of Ruth is not a story of utter brokenness. It's a story of utter hope. It's a story that whenever God's love is allowed to enter into your life, everything changed. Divine love moves and speaks against impossibility. Who here today has got an impossible story? Divine love steps into broken places and picks up shattered pieces. You know, some of the most beautiful artwork on the entire planet is stained glass. You know what stained glass is? Shattered pieces of glass. Shattered pieces of glass that someone has handed over to the master artist and said, can you do something with it? And piece by piece, they bring it back together to paint a glorious picture. Listen to me, everyone in this room, we've got shattered lives. There's not a single person in this room that can stand before God and say, I'm without sin. And I've never messed up. Would you today hand your pieces over to the king and say, God, would you, would you create a masterpiece? 
God, I'm going to be honest, I'm looking at my story right now, and I'm not really seeing how you can change much. It looks impossible to me. It looks hopeless to me. God, I feel a lot like Naomi. I don't feel pleasant anymore. I feel bitter. God, I look at my story, and I'm heading back home, and I don't even want people to look at me and call me Naomi anymore because I don't even feel like that person. I feel like something else. Can I just tell you something? But God, would you give him some space? Would you allow him to speak? Would you run home to his arms and say, God, take me from my brokenness and return me back to you? God, I repent of my sin. I want you and you alone again. I've searched for bread other places, and I found death. I searched for bread and I found poison, but God, I'm coming back to Bethlehem. I'm coming back home. I'm coming to your kingdom, to your presence, because that's where the real bread is. God, would you, would you bring me home? Because divine love rescues and restores. Divine love can take unexplainable beauty and make it emerge from unimaginable tragedy. Divine love can make the blessing better than the curse. Ooh, let me say that again. Divine love can make the blessing better than the curse. Some of you, you've experienced the curse of sin. You've tasted that poison. It's robbed you of some things. And you're left wondering, God, can there, can there, be, any, can there be any hope? Listen to me. <laughs> Naomi left Bethlehem full, though she didn't feel like she was full. She returns to Bethlehem empty. Everything's been taken. But she's returned home to God. And she's returned home with another person who we're gonna see faith and love displayed like none other in the form of Ruth, the most unlikely cast of characters for this story. A whole book in the Bible that's dedicated to a woman who is a Moabite woman who should not be in the Bible, who rings forth and shows what the gospel looks like. She's included there because she's going to be the relative, the distant relative of David, who, by the way, Jesus is going to trace his line through Ruth. Don't tell me that God can't take your story and spin it around. God's going to take the king of kings and bring it through brokenness. And God can take whatever you felt like the enemy has stolen from you, that curse, and he can turn it into a blessing if you'll let him. But you got to get home. Listen to me. God could not bless them in Moab. This story does not happen if Naomi goes, you know what? The Lord has dealt harshly with me. I think I'm just going to stay here. The blessing of God cannot be found apart from the presence of God. Can I plead with you today? Go home. Come home. Because divine love can rewrite any story. The person sitting next to you is a story that got rewrote. The person speaking to you today is a story that got rewrote. I deserve death, I deserve destruction, I deserve eternity in hell. I deserve to be cast apart from the presence of God for forever because I treated his name as worthless in my sin. I looked at him and I said, who you are is absolutely worthless to me. I'd rather do it my own way. Instead of you being king, I would rather be king. Sound a little bit like a limelech, don't I? Instead of God as my king in my sin and brokenness, I said, I'll be king. But can I tell you something? God rewrites stories. 
God is the God who takes everything that you thought that the enemy took from you and he can spin it for his good. And there's a beauty that can be found there. We're gonna find that in this story, but my prayer for you today is to realize there is hope and you need hope today. On Valentine's Day in 2021, when our world is desperately searching for love, can I tell you something? You've already been loved. You've been loved more than you could possibly imagine. He came over 2,000 years ago and he put himself on a tree. He stretched out his arms and he said, I love you so much. I'll be willing to give every ounce of blood, every second of my life to be spent on behalf of you so that I could bring you near. The king of kings says, I want you as my own. I want to claim you as my own. Would you return home? You know, Jesus described himself as the bread of life. Man, we've been searching for Bethlehem outside of Bethlehem and Moab. We've been searching for bread, but God is beckoning you to come home and say, find it in me. Can we do that this morning? Let's, can we just stand this morning and let's close in prayer. The worship team, if you want, you can make your way to the stage. We're going to close in a song. Wherever you're at, would you just bow your heads and close your eyes and let's make this a holy moment before God. I don't know where you're at. You might be a Limelech right now. You might be finding yourself in a place where it seems like if I could just step outside of the commands of God, it sure seems like bread's over there. So my prayer for you this morning is that you would learn a lesson from Elimelech and go, no, God, I'm already in Bethlehem. Would you realize that God loves you more than you could imagine? Would you embrace that? Or maybe, maybe you're at the tail end of your time in Moab. You've been searching for a while. You've been wandering the hills of Moab you have searched for bread and you've eaten, but you found poison. Everything that Moab promised you has not fulfilled and it has taken from you your very sense of identity. You don't even feel like yourself anymore in your own skin. Whenever people look at you, you're like, I'm not Naomi anymore, I'm Mara. My life is bitter, I'm hurting, I'm broken. And you're like, God, I just, can you, can you do it? Can you change me back? Can I be pleasant once again? Can I tell you that he can? But I'm pleading with you, listen to me today. It's time for us to come home. It's time for us to leave Moab, to leave our sin in the past and say, God, I want to chase you. God, you are the bread of life. You are everything that I need. You are all that I want. I'm going to ask in this moment, if we could, it's just every head would be out, every eye would be closed, no one looking around. This is a moment between you and God. I want this to be a moment that's special to you. But if you're here today and you're saying, you know what, Pastor Josh, I've been, I've been traveling the plains of Moab, and I can feel the voice of God calling me home today, and I want to return home. I don't want to be Mara anymore. I want to be Naomi if that's you today and you feel the voice of the Holy Spirit whispering you, come home, my child, would you just very, very quickly lift up a hand in this house today? Thank you. Hands going up across the room. Thank you.
Thank you so much. Father, Lord, today I pray that you see every one of these hands. In the name of Jesus, I pray that, God, in this moment, this would be a holy moment between you and them, and that, Lord, you would bring them in. That, God, we would be reminded once again that you are all that we need. You are the, the Holy One. You are solely sufficient of everything that our heart's been longing for. Jesus, would you return us to Naomi? Would you bring pleasantness back into our life because we've returned home? Jesus, I pray in this moment right now that Holy Spirit, I pray that your, your presence would be in this room and that you would speak to hearts and lives. That Lord, even as we sing this song, there'd be a moment where heaven touches earth and lives are changed. God, would you bring us home? Would you bring us home? Father, I pray for every heart that you would restore it. If you're, wherever you're at, if you lifted your hand, would you just pray along with me as I pray this prayer? It's a prayer of saying, God, I want to turn from my sin and I want to turn to you, God. I want to move away from the brokenness that I have and I want to come home to you, Jesus. I, I confess my sins to you and I'm asking you to forgive me and make me your own. I'm asking you, God, to make me your child once again. Father, Lord, we come before you and we collectively come in your, in your presence. And God, we say, Lord, we realize we have made many mistakes. We have sinned many times. God, we have given you every reason not to love us and yet your love pursues us. Jesus, I pray in this room today that we would be people who turn from our past. We would turn from Moab and we would turn to you. God, from the things that we tried to find hope and help and healing from apart from your presence, Jesus, would we go back to you? Would we find in you all that we need? Lord, we confess you as our Lord. We believe in our heart that you rose from the dead and that in you we have life because you are the bread of life. And Jesus, would you today meet with your people, I pray, in your name, amen. So we're gonna do, we're gonna close with this song. This is a gospel-laden song. Maybe you just need to sit there and just soak it in. Feel free to sing along. The words of this song are the gospel ringing over your heart. Would you allow God to take you in? If you're here today and you would like prayer, maybe you raised a hand or maybe there's someone in your life that you're praying for that they would turn from Moab. I wanna pray for you. I'll be right up here on this um, far side over here. Again, it can be for you personally or it can be for someone that you're praying for, but I wanna take this moment to pray for you and let's believe that what God's doing today, he's gonna solidify so as they sing, I just want to have that opportunity, and then Grady will bring us to a close, and you'll be free to leave. Thank you so much for coming and worshiping with us. And my prayer is, again, join us next week at our new building as we dive into Ruth and we continue in it. It's going to be a beautiful love story. You're not going to want to miss any part of this. But today, can I just plead with you, if God's doing something in your heart, take the journey home. It's not that long of a walk. Would you allow him to speak to you?